Hello friends, I'm so glad to be with you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Herrick and I'm one of the pastors of Restore Temecula and I wanna welcome you wherever you're tuning in. It's good to be with you. If you are new, we're in a series that's called Teach Us to Fast and the big idea with this series is that fasting is, it's foregoing food to feast on God. And if you have not listened to the first couple of messages from this series, I wanna highly encourage you to pause and go back and listen to those messages because they really lay a foundation for why we fast, the rewards of fasting. And I really do think that as I've talked to a lot of people, it sort of set this framework of joy. It's like fasting is a, is a joyful uh, thing that we get to do. It's a, it's a spiritual discipline, but it's really, it's an intimacy building practice where we get to enjoy intimacy with our Father in heaven and delight in him as his kids. So I highly want to encourage you to go back if you haven't listened to those messages. Uh, this morning, I have the privilege of opening up his word, God's word to us, and uh, kind of just sharing some stuff that I feel like God's put on my heart from a couple different passages from the Hebrew Bible from the Old Testament. I'm really excited to dive into those with you. Before we do, I want to share a quick story with you to kind of set up our time. As I was thinking about this, this message, I kept thinking about this, this one time in my life when I was 17 years old. I was living in South Orange County. I was a high school junior, and I have a twin brother. And he and I, we really had a pretty good relationship. We got on very well. I think it really helped that he and I had a lot of the same interests. We had the same group of friends, which is remarkable. Like for the last 20 or so years, we've had a very similar kind of group of friends. Uh, we loved the, kind of the same things. He loves baseball. I love baseball. We love going up to Angel Games. We lived in Orange County, so we love to drive up to Anaheim regularly, take some friends go to catch games. We love the same kind of music. We love going to the beach every day during the summer when we were in high school. It feels like we were at Laguna Beach, uh, body surfing or whatever with friends. So he and I got on really well. We enjoyed each other. And here's the thing. For me, having a twin brother was a gift that I can't thank Jesus enough for. I'm introverted and we ended up moving around a decent bit when I was younger and it was so good to know that wherever I moved to there was always somebody there that I knew I was never gonna be completely alone and that for me with my wiring and kind of temperament it meant a lot so I loved having a twin brother and we really got on very well early on in our junior year though we had what I think was our real only real dust-up and the truth is I do not remember how it started I have a guess my hypothesis is that uh, when we were juniors, we did have one source of conflict, which is that we lived in Laguna Niguel and we went to high school in Rancho Santa Margarita. It's about a half an hour commute between those two places. So that meant that we had to get up early and get on the road early in order to make it to school early. It was issues with parking too. So we had to make sure we had a parking spot so that we didn't have to park super far away, which would guarantee that we wouldn't make it. And so here's the problem. I've never been what you would call on time. What is time anyway? Am I right? So if I had to guess what probably started this dust up, I think it was probably a conflict about being late because that meant him carpooling with me when we got our license meant that he was in detention a whole lot more. And so I think that's probably what happened. I think at some point one night, he starts chirping about something and I'm like, who are you talking to, me? I'm the only one here. And before I know it, we're, you know, exchanging, uh, we're exchanging some French. We actually, they did, did take French, sacre bleu. And uh, before I know it, I'm seeing lights. I'm like this 
and everything's gone dark and I'm just seeing little stars. And uh, what happened? He socked me and I did not expect it. I did not see it coming. But it was almost like this instantly. He was like, oh no, 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 no. And he apologized immediately. It was a heartfelt uh, apology and we reconciled very fast and nothing like that ever happened. Again, it was one and done kind of thing. And here's the thing though, if you were to go back into the Santa Margarita Catholic High School uh, 2002 yearbook, you would see this face, a little younger, uh, but you would notice that I had a black eye. And he, the black eye came from, you guessed it, from that, from that dust up with my brother. And it wasn't the, the only time that I ever got socked in the face. I actually do, used to do a little bit of a moonlight boxing in South Orange County. So I'd, I saw stars before, but never for my brother. And here's the thing. I was thinking about this, this story. I was like, what does this story have to do with this message? Even in a pretty harmonious relationship, we got into fights. We had our dust-ups. There was, there was pain and wounding that happened. We hurt each other, my brother and I did. And there was some pain and bruises that we picked up along the way. Now, we are the church. We are the family of God. And even though I've had the privilege of being here with you for these last two and a half years, and there's been so much incredible work that God has done to bring restoration, to bring redemption, to bring hope to so many of you, healing in your relationships and so on, I know that there is still a lot of pain in this community. There just is. God has done much, and we can rejoice in that, but there is still pain and suffering of all kinds in this community. There are some of us in this community who have experienced significant emotional, mental uh, challenges with mental health, trauma. Uh, there are people in this community who have experienced significant health challenges. There are people in this community that have experienced significant loss with respect to uh, relationships that could be death or other types of loss. Now, some of you in our community have felt seriously wounded and betrayed by people in your family of origin, whether it's your parents or your siblings or people that you counted on in life that turned out weren't actually there for you. And on the flip side, there are people in this community who also feel like, man, I wasn't there for others that I was supposed to be there for. And there's pain and shame and guilt associated with that. For many of us, if you walk around a community, if you think about the black eye, it's sort of like you don't see the black eye on me anymore. If you did, if you took the picture of junior year of, of my, if you saw the junior year pic. Uh, but the black eye, in a sense, is healed. And it is, so it is with us in many cases. But the pain remains. It's still there. It's still underneath. That pain doesn't just go away. So I just want to ask the question, like, what do we do with this? Where do we go to find healing and wholeness? What does it look like to pursue it together as a community? Today, I just want to talk about one thing as we, as we dive deeper into this fasting series that we can do together, and that's fast for healing. Now, I think a disclaimer is in order. What I've described are delicate, complex situations. I don't believe there's a silver bullet for healing in this life. 
by that I mean I don't think that it's like if you just do X, everything will be fine. I do not think that that's the case. And as I've recently heard someone put it, I love this. People are just way more complex and fascinating and multi-layered than a formula or a checklist. And I believe that that's true. What am I saying? Let me ask you a question first before I explain what I'm saying. Do you want to get well? Because everything that I'm going to talk about today hinges on that idea that you do want to get well and that we want to get well together. Do you want to pursue health and wholeness in community? Whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, which by the way, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus and you're tuning into this uh, video message or podcast or whatever, welcome. We are so glad that you are with us. Whether you're not a follower of Jesus yet or you are, I think all of us have wounds and pain that we probably need to, to address. And if you're open to it, you will have so many tools available to you. There's the tools that arise from medicine. There's tools that arise from psychology. There's tools that arise from counseling. There's Christian counseling, etc., etc. And those, there's so much good stuff that we can glean from those disciplines, from those practices, from those fields. Yes and amen. What I want to talk to you about today, fasting for healing, I think it's a tool that most of us haven't really thought about and most of us probably have never used. So it's not no to this, it's Yes, plus, don't forget about this, because God has offered us this tool for healing and for wholeness. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't at least think about using this tool of fasting when we are in need of healing. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to do that. We're going to explore a couple stories out of the Hebrew Bible, out of the Old Testament. We're going to start with Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, and then we're going to look at David in 2 Samuel 12. So a little bit of context since we have not been in the book of Samuel. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, they're actually not two books, they're one. It's just that because of scroll length issues, when these, these books were written down, you had to put them on two different scrolls. So 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, it's just the book of Samuel. So 1 Samuel 1, we meet Hannah. And she was living in a very difficult time for her people. Quickly, there was moral chaos and there was a shocking lack of leadership. Sound familiar? Uh, there's a shocking lack of godly leadership in her nation. So things were bad around her, but things were also tough within her. So she was a woman who was marked by grief. Why? Because she couldn't conceive. That's hard enough as it is, period. That is hard. Add to that the fact that back then there was a social stigma that was associated with being childless for women. It was a negative social stigma. Also, your husband could actually divorce you if you couldn't, if you didn't bear children. Add to that the fact that back then there was no social security. So your children were going to take care of you as you got older. So there's a lot of pain and heartbreak that this woman is experiencing and facing. Married, does not have children, cannot have children. Life for her is not the way it's supposed to be, around her or within her. Maybe you can relate to her pain in some way today. So I want to dive in with you and I want to see how she responds to her situation and what we can learn from her. So we're going to be reading out of 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to start by looking at a couple verses, verses 6 to 8. And it says this, Her rival, Hannah had a rival, would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. 
Verse 7, year after year, when she, Hannah, went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her along the way. Pause here for a second. Imagine you are seeking God in the midst of your pain. And what you hear are voices that say things like, you're too messed up. Don't bother. God doesn't care about you. You're a hypocrite. You know, these cutting words. The truth is, I think all of us can relate to that. Whether we have people actually saying that, some of us do, or there's just this inner voice that accuses us, that taunts us, that puts us down as we're seeking God. That's what Hannah experienced. So hopefully Hannah is relatable in that sense. She's relatable to me. I hope she's relatable to you. She's experiencing opposition as she pursues the things of God in her life. Here's what it says. Her rival taunted her in this way, verse 7. Hannah would not, she would weep and would not eat. In other words, she fasted. Verse 8. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah said, would, would ask, why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Pause here for a second. I think it's important just to say Hannah's suffering was really all-encompassing. She suffered relationally. She was taunted. She suffered physically, obviously. She suffered emotionally. You can see that she's crying. She's deeply moved. She's broken. And she suffered spiritually because it says the Lord kept her from having children. In other words, Hannah had every reason to despair, to become bitter, to walk away from the Lord and from his people, to give up. But what do we see her doing? What does the text actually say? It says that she didn't pull back from the Lord. She went into his presence. She pushed away the opposition, or she withstood the opposition to be with the Lord, to pour out her heart to him, and she fasted for healing, which is what this message is all about. Let's keep going. Verse 10. 1 Samuel 1, verse 10. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. Verse 12. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. 13. Hannah was praying silently, though her lips were moving. Her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. And so he wanted to make sure that the Lord's place was, was set apart as holy. That was his concern. And Hannah's like, so she was misunderstood even as she was seeking God. And we could probably all relate to that. People misunderstand us when we're broken maybe assume things about us that aren't true. Again, how does Hannah respond to that? It says, verse 15, No, my Lord, Hannah replied, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any, any beer or wine. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. She clarifies things for her. She clarifies the misunderstanding. Eli then responds, Oh, shoot, my bad. Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. Verse 18, she replied, May your servant find favor with you. Then Hannah went away. She ate and no longer looked despondent. Something changed. What was that? She didn't avoid her pain. 
She didn't bottle it up. She didn't become self-absorbed and get lost in her pain. She did not try to control things. She was honest before God about her pain and even her resentment, her anguish and resentment. She was honest with other people, with Eli, with other members of God's household about her situation. She made a decision, and this is key, to leave the problem with God and entrust it to him. Then it says that she ate, which I personally take to mean that her time of fasting for healing was complete. Then we keep going, verse 19. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. God came through. He gave Hannah a son, and not just any son. Samuel, if you know the story, would grow up to become a great leader in the house of God. What did they need? It was a type of moral chaos and a lack of godly leadership. Here's Samuel, the kindness of God, through this woman's pain, to answer the people's need in that way. That was amazing. God delivered on so many levels as Hannah fasted for healing. Then it says, I prayed for this boy. This is several verses later. Hannah says, I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked for him, now I give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of what can happen when a suffering saint wants God more than his gifts. Her fasting became an expression of her love for God, her desire for his mercy, and her trust in his plan. Amazing. As she fasted, she cried out, she poured out her heart, and she waited on God, who then became Hannah's greatest treasure. At that point, she didn't need to control things. She didn't need to control, but she could give the gift back to the giver because she trusted him. Fasting for healing can bring so much healing and not just physically. It was about so much more for Hannah than just physical, physical healing. She was transformed into a trusting, loving, royal daughter, no longer defined by her circumstances or her lack. Do you want that? You can cry out for it today. You can seek God this way in community. You can fast for healing. Now, let's jump over to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and quickly look at David in his story. So this is going to be a little bit different. David was a king, if you don't know his story. Remarkable man. He was a king. And God promised David a son who would be king with a capital K, if you like. God promised David that the Messiah would come from David's lineage. He would be a descendant of David. He promised him Jesus. And this later son of David is now king and Lord, and he will rule and reign for all eternity. That's our Lord Jesus. Even with all of these incredible promises, though, David, who was himself an amazing king in many ways, failed spectacularly. David self-sabotaged. And if you're hearing my voice, there may be some of you who you look at your life and you're like, Amidst all of the good things that God has given me, I've blown it spectacularly. I've self-sabotaged. I've imploded my life, my relationships, 
whatever. Let's see what we can learn from David and how he responded. What happened with David is that he stole another man's wife and slept with her, Bathsheba. It's bad. That's always bad, but this is especially bad because Bathsheba would have been under what you could call like a psychological pressure of one in power over her. David was in power over her. So she may have acquiesced to being intimate with David, but it was a violation. David violated Bathsheba. She was a victim in so many ways. On top of that, she got pregnant. And then David doubled down on his sin and tried to cover it up by killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So rough in so many ways. David got caught. Here's what happened. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 to 23. We're going to go through them little by little. Verse 13, David responded to Nathan saying, I have sinned against the Lord. So David saw his sin and he offers no denial. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't try to explain it away. He doesn't try to blame the pressure that he's under as king or his whatever. He doesn't doesn't do any of that. He simply owns his part with a broken heart. He's in in effect saying, hey, I'm I'm not the good guy. I look like it on the outside. I'm kingly, I'm royal, uh, I'm godly on the outside, but on the inside right now, I'm the villain. I'm the villain. Now get ready for the divine response. Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Pause. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, God can forgive you. He is a gracious, merciful, gracious king. He loves to forgive. He is, his grace is radical. It's scandalous, okay? But like David, like all of us, we have to humble ourselves first. We have to admit our role in the story isn't hero. It's villain. And then God can work with you. And maybe the sin and the life that the things that you've gone through or that you've done that you've experienced don't look exactly like David's. Few of us do. Few of any of us do. But at the end of the day, there's something that David wanted more than God himself. And we can all relate to wanting other things more than God and compromising our relationships, our health, our whatever to get them. We all can relate to idolatry. Worship of other things is ultimate above God, beside God. And we can own that first, and then we can come to him humbly and ask for forgiveness. And we have no reason to think that if we're humble and coming to him, asking him for forgiveness, that he'll turn us away. That's just not the way that he operates. He's gracious and kind. So he he extends his offer of forgiveness to you today, no matter what you've done. Now, let's keep going. Verse 14. It says this, however, because this is now Nathan talking to David. However, because you treated the Lord with contempt... In this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. So what happened? God stubbornly set his love, his affection on David. Okay, the grace piece is scandalous. It should make us uncomfortable. In a sense, it should shock us that God would pursue and welcome and invite and work through people like David who did such terrible things. But it should also give us hope if we really begin to understand the human condition that we're all fallen, we're all broken, and there's different expressions of it, but we are all capable of doing far worse than we've ever done, 
We're all capable of the same sin as David if we had been in his shoes, lived his life, and been in that place that he was in. We're all capable of it. So the key is we, we all see that we all need forgiveness too, and that should actually give us hope. With that said, David was forgiven, and yet we see very clearly that the consequences remain. Here's what happens. The death of his son. Let's keep reading. 15. The Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became deathly ill. Verse 16. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted. He went home and he spent the night lying on the ground. So he's fasting for healing. Verse 17, the elders of his house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat anything with them. On the seventh day, the baby died. But David's servants were afraid to tell him that the baby was dead. They were scared of telling him the truth. They said, look, while the baby was alive, we spoke to him and he wouldn't listen to us. Now how can we tell him that the baby's dead? He may do something desperate. So they were scared. What's he going to do? 19, when David saw his servants whispering to each other, he guessed that the baby was dead. So he asked his servant, is the baby dead? He is dead. They replied. Verse 20, then David got up from the ground. He washed, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, and he went to the Lord's house and worshiped. He didn't become bitter. He didn't run away in anger or turn his back on God or God's people. He worshiped. What does that tell you? David had been humbled as a man. This fast was an expression of his humility. We'll read more about that here in a minute. He went home and requested something to eat. So they served him food and he ate. Verse 21, his servants asked him, why have you done this? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept. But when he died, you got up and ate food. This, you would expect the opposite. That he would be fasting, you know, that he would be crying out now that the baby's dead. Verse 22, and this reveals David's heart. This is key. He answered, while the baby was alive, I fasted and I wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will never return to me. He's not coming back in this life. David fasted for healing, not because he deserved healing or because he earned it, but rather because he understood that the Lord is gracious. David knows that fasting is based on divine grace, not merit. We can all fast for healing no matter what we've done. It doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily always get what we fast for. David's son died, and that's something that it's there in the story. It's a good reminder. We're not always going to get exactly what we asked for. And at the same time, even if God does not change the circumstances, he can heal and restore our relationship with him when we sin and fall. Now, fasting for healing is appropriate for the sufferer, like a Hannah. She didn't do anything to be in that space, so she fasted for healing. And it's also appropriate, fasting for healing is appropriate for the sinner, like David. Why? Because all of us, no matter where we're at, we're all banking on his grace. We're all banking on his grace so we can fast for healing. I think this is really cool. God was not done with David. The consequences remained, of course, but he wasn't done, not by a long shot. David blew it spectacularly, but God renewed the relationship 
with David and gave him another son, Solomon. I love these words from Tony Evans, who's a pastor. He said this about this incident in David's life. He said, God showed David his grace. It says that David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and then they ended up, she ended up getting pregnant, and she had a son, and she named him Solomon. Now, the Lord loved Solomon and sent word through Nathan, the prophet, the man that God had used previously to essentially show David that he had been caught. He sent Nathan, the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. What the heck does that mean? Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. So God was saying to David, I'm giving your new son my name to remind you that my grace has now come into this relationship. Amazing. David didn't get what he fasted for in one sense, but on the, in the deeper sense, he absolutely did. The restoration of his relationship with God. God's showing him, I'm still going to be gracious to you, David. Solomon, think about Solomon for a second. If you don't know the story, God used David, Bathsheba, Solomon in the lineage of Jesus. Of Jesus, the one who died for us, the one who wipes our slates clean, the one who makes us new people with a new identity, who belong to a new family, who have a new status as righteous before God, in the right before him, forgiven, loved, identified with Jesus forever. He gives us all this through the line of David through Solomon, through Bathsheba, okay? This is all telling us something. God redeems our pain and sin as we entrust it to him for healing. He's that good. He's that good. I want to say one real quick thing before I close out with some practical stuff. I asked some ladies from our church to be praying for this message and they had so much encouraging stuff. I'm so glad I did. They sent me so much encouraging stuff, so much insight and wisdom about these passages. And I just want to share one thing that came through the thread that I, I think is for all of us. It says this, we can hold as we fast for healing, as we approach God, as we seek him for healing. We can hold our desires with open hands. We see that with, with David. We see that with Hannah. Open hands. When we leave our hands open, our hearts are also open and able to not only accept the will of God, but to rejoice in it like David did, worship God. So I want to close with this. How might you need healing? Where is there pain in your life? Whether it's physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, or pain of any kind. What's God highlighting to you right now? as you consider these questions. I want to encourage you to take, over the next week, a 24-hour period to fast for healing. It can be with your gospel community, ideally, or with others. And I want to give you three ideas. You can do it however you want, but I want to give you three ideas. Number one, you can fast for physical healing, either your own or someone else's. Maybe you know someone who has, who's struggling through infertility, cancer, heart problems, COVID, any disease or physical brokenness is in view here. So you can fast for physical healing. Number two, you could fast for inner healing, either your own or someone else's. I need to define this because inner healing can be so nebulous. I'm talking about 
fasting and praying that God would help you nurture an emotional connection with him. I love this language. I got this language from a counseling program that I'm in. We can ask him to help us. You can ask him to help you progressively internalize your identity in Christ and and experience him as a real person. You can ask him to help you progressively internalize your identity in Christ and experience him as a real person. Who doesn't need that? To close the divide between what we know in our heads and what we believe in our hearts. You can use fasting as a tool, fasting for healing to create space for this, to pray for this. Here's something that's key. Remember that how God views us ought to inform how we feel about ourselves. What God says is more important than what even we say about ourselves. And that shapes how we respond to him and to other people. So I want to encourage you just to ask, I want to give you three quick questions. If you want to fast for inner healing to experience more of your identity and experience him as a real person, I want to encourage you to ask God's spirit these questions as you make time, as you fast, as you pray. Holy Spirit, how does God see me? How do I feel about me in light of how God sees me? And what images come to mind when I think about God? How does God see me? How do I feel about me in light of how God sees me? And then what images come to mind when I think about God? You can use your imagination. You think about him like a, like a renewed, restored, redeemed imagination that helps us to connect and engage with God. You can also fast. This is the third one. You can also fast for relational healing. Is there a relationship in your life that's broken? Maybe it's a broken marriage, yours or someone else's. Maybe it's a sibling who's hurt. Maybe it's a relationship that's been neglected. Maybe it's a relationship that's been severed because of sin. Maybe it's a strained relationship with a boss or a coworker or a neighbor or a friend or extended family. You can fast and fast and ask God to bring healing to those relationships. I want to just finish by encouraging you to ask God to lead you through it. Ask him, what should I be praying and fasting for? These are just ideas. I think they're reasonably good ideas, but you, there might be more. I want to encourage you to remember that fasting for healing is about, it's about foregoing food to feast on him. It's a chance to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so I love you, my brothers and sisters. I want to encourage you to fast for healing this week. And I want to just close by saying grace and peace to you, which comes from God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. He loves you so much. And we get to live joyful lives together as a community and seek him in every way, including fasting for healing. We love you. Enjoy your week.